Let's stand together, and if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Isaiah chapter 40. I've heard people say, I have a hard time with the God of judgment and wrath in the Old Testament. I prefer the God of the New Testament, uh, the God of grace and mercy and peace. Perhaps you've heard that as well. In the book of Isaiah, there are 66 chapters and very simple division. In chapters 1 through 39, you have the judgment of God on the nation because they knew the truth about God, they had the prophets of God, but they hardened their hearts and went after idols, sacrificed their children to Baal Moloch in the flames, uh, became like the nations which God dispossessed, horrible perversions, uh, rebellion against Almighty God, and God warned them and warned them and warned them and warned them. And the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, he's warning them. But then you have Isaiah 40 to 66. And some commentators have called Isaiah 40 to 66 the New Testament in the Old Testament. It's all about the grace and mercy and forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ, the coming Messiah. Uh, it's culminated in uh, Isaiah 53, which is all about Jesus on the cross. Uh, Jewish people have been converted by simply reading Isaiah 53 and realizing that Jesus is the Messiah. There's no other explanation. We're in Isaiah 40, but I have a tendency not to start where I'm supposed to. <laughs> so we will begin in Isaiah 39. Isaiah 39:5, where Isaiah is speaking to one of the kings, Hezekiah, and he says this, he tells them that the judgment is going to come. 39.5, Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, days are coming, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day will be carried to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your sons, that word can mean grandsons, who will issue from you, whom you will beget, will be taken away and they will become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. Now, this is what happened to Daniel uh, and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. The book of Daniel is all about when the people of God were taken into captivity in Babylon. They were in there for 70 years. He is telling him this is gonna happen. Interestingly, um, there are some liberal scholars who say that um, Isaiah was not authored by one Isaiah, there were actually two. And why would they say such a thing? They would say it because what Isaiah told Hezekiah in chapter 39 actually was fulfilled 150 years later, approximately. To the T. And the liberal scholars have come along and said, well, there's no way he could have known what was going to happen 150 years down the road. So there must have been a second Isaiah who added on to his book after that all happened. 
Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is it too hard for the Lord to tell his prophets what's going to happen? There are hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament that were literally fulfilled in the New Testament by the Lord Jesus Christ. There's all kinds of fulfilled prophecy in the scripture. That's not a problem for God. So now we get to Genesis, uh, to, um, where are we? I'm having a wonderful time here in Boise, Idaho. We're in where, Frisco? And we're in Isaiah 40, okay. So let's go to Isaiah 40. And what's happening in Isaiah 40, the first thing he's gonna say is comfort. Not judgment, but comfort. Comfort. My people, says your God. Now what's happening here is very interesting because he is speaking, <laughs> this is fascinating. He is speaking to those who will be in captivity 150 years later as though they are already in captivity, but they haven't even been born yet. But he knows through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit what is going to happen. So as we read through this, we see the New Testament here. For instance, Isaiah 43, and yes, this will be on the midterm. So you might wanna pay attention here. Chuck just reads the scripture, doesn't he? He'll be back next week, won't you be glad? We'll all be glad. Verse three, a voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. So what's the big deal about that? That's John the Baptist, 700 years in the future. Matthew 3, 1, now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judah saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is about to show up. For this is the one, watch this, for this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So there's New Testament in Isaiah. Oh, then go down to verse six, a voice calls out, and he answered, what shall I call out? That all flesh is grass. All flesh, that's us, look at this, flesh and blood. All flesh is grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. Man, we had some beautiful flowers by our front door just last week. They look horrific right now. Why? Because flowers have beauty and then flowers die. So do human beings. All flesh is like grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. Our grass is gonna wither before long. The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. We come and we go. Watch this, eight. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God stands forever. The word of our God, John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That's Jesus. Jesus is the living word who gave us the written word. Go down to verse 10. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He's an all-powerful, almighty God, as we saw last week. But he's just not powerful. He's tender. Like a shepherd, he will send his flock. This is Jesus. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. 
Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes, the little baby lambs. He's got, he's got all power, but he's tender. He's near to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. This is a great God. This is Jesus. This is John 10. My sheep hear my voice, and they know me, and I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for the power of your word, for the truth of your word. Everyone in this room, you know, you know everything about us. You know our fears, our worries, our concerns, our anxieties. You know it all. You know what we need. I pray that by your spirit, you will speak to each heart this morning by the power of your word. We need you. And those who think they don't need you, need you most of all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Here's a name for you, Robert Dick Wilson. We're giving away a Mercedes to anyone who can tell me about Robert Dick Wilson. It's a small Mercedes, but nevertheless a Mercedes. Robert Dick Wilson is one of the legendary Old Testament scholars uh, in evangelical history. He taught for many years at Western Seminary and then became professor at Princeton Theological Seminary when it was biblically solid. Princeton Theological Seminary was a bastion of biblical orthodoxy, and they defended the faith for, I don't know, 150 years. And then what happens, this tends to happen with Christian institutions, there's a threat somewhere 50, 60, 70, 80 years that takes them away from holding fast to the Word of God. Uh, Robert Dick Wilson became a professor at Princeton when they were wavering on the Word of God, but he did not waver. He was a brilliant Old Testament scholar. He, uh, he loved his students. He, he had one son who died in his 20s, and it broke his heart. After his son's death, he began to refer to his theological students, young men who would become pastors and theologians, he referred to them as uh, his boys. They're my boys. Um, some of you might know this name, Donald Gray Barnhouse. Tremendous preacher. Um, Barnhouse was pastor of uh, 10th Presbyterian Church in downtown Philadelphia. Uh, tremendous biblical scholar. Fabulous preacher. You can still hear him on the radio. You can hear him on the internet. He was the first preacher. When radio hit in the 20s, he was the first preacher whose sermons were broadcast nationally. He was powerful. He had gone to Princeton Seminary. He had taken Hebrew and Old Testament classes from Robert Dick Wilson. He was invited back to the seminary one day to preach, 12, 15 years after his graduation. Robert Dick Wilson was sitting on the front row. And after Barnhouse preached, Robert Dick Wilson came up to him and said, I'm so glad I could hear you preach. If you come back, I will not be here. 
And that sort of took Barnhouse back. He said, I only come once to hear my boys preach. I just need to come once to find out what they really are. And Barnhouse said, what they really are? He said, yes, I need to find out if they're a big godder or a little godder. The big godders believe that God inspired his word. They believe that the God of the Bible did those miracles. They believe that this big God watched over his word as it was copied and transmitted down through the generations and that it can be trusted. Yes, yes, Donald Gray Barnhouse, you indeed are a big godder. Every day we've got to decide in our own lives if we're going to be a big godder or a little godder. It's hard to be a big godder because we are constantly being told that, um, well, it's because of the days in which we live. Last week, I quoted at points from John Lennox's book, Can Science Explain Everything? We, we have three idols, major idols right now in, in our culture. Uh, the first one is self. That's always been the first idol. It's all about us. It's all about me. Um, self. We love ourselves. Um, how many times have you heard, well, I remember one time being on a plane and a lady, I was in the middle seat, a lady pushed her seat back. I had a book to read, but I couldn't move my arms. And I'm not exaggerating. It, it, it was one of those little jets. I could not get my book up. And, and her, the top of her cushion was in my Adam's apple. And I, I literally could not read. So I started reading her book. This is true. And she's reading some book. She's on page five. She'd just gotten into it. I was catching up. And it's by some psychologist. And, and you know, the, what they're doing is they're setting up, you know, to hook everybody. In the first chapter, you want to hook them. And is your problem this, or do you have this, or do you struggle with that, or do you do struggle with this, or do you Or is it this, or are you struggling, or are you depressed? And, you know, they're building up to something that they've got the answer. You turn the page, is it this, is it this? Then you need to, watch this, look deep inside yourself. Really, is that the best you've got? I've looked inside myself. There's not a lot there. There's not a lot inside you. And what's there isn't that good. In fact, it's pretty bad. Can the leopard change his spots? Can the Ethiopian change the color of his skin? Then you can do good who are accustomed to doing evil, Jeremiah says. The heart is desperately sick and wicked. Who can know it? Out of the heart comes murder, fornications, strife, envy, Jesus said. You you really don't want to look inside yourself. There are no answers there. Looking inside yourself is like going scuba diving in a septic tank. (laughs) Now, I realize that's kind of graphic. But that's exactly the case of our hearts without Christ. Why would you make a God out of yourself? But self is the most popular idol in our culture. You have, you have 
self, then you have sexual anarchy. Don't tell me what to do. I want my sexual freedom. And thirdly, we have the God of science. Science is the new God. We spent time on that last week. John Lennox, three PhDs, Professor Emeritus at Oxford, talks about the two worldviews. And he, he also talked about the fact that, you know, a lot of people think that science and Christianity don't mix. But he made the point in the book that between 1900 and 2000, over 60% of the new Nobel Prize laureates were Christians. One year you'll have a Christian, the next year you'll have an atheist. What's the difference between them? The difference is their worldviews. The two major worldviews in our culture, in our times right now, are theism, God exists, and atheism, God does not exist. It's difficult in our culture to be a big godder when you are consistently told that God is not there and that God does not exist and that God is not real. But you see, the scripture says that he is there. Um, I remember when my son John was 18 and he told me he wanted to go to a particular college. He was very excited about it. And I said, well, yeah, that's fine, John, but I'm not gonna have anything to do with that. I'm not gonna be involved with that financially. And he said, Dad, it's a really good school. I said, it's a really good party school. But I'm not gonna do that. I have never understood why we would raise our kids for 18 years, teach them the word of God, pray with them, teach them the truth about Jesus, try to give them a biblical foundation and a worldview, and then at 18, we just send them off at 50 grand a year to the University of the Canaanites. <laughs> That's my view. I'm not saying what you should. I'm just saying I've never, I, I wouldn't do it. And a few weeks later, he said, well, Dad, I might go ahead anyway. I said, it's fine. And then he looked at his budget and his net worth, and he came back and he said, so, Dad, what school would you help me with? And I said, well, Rachel's out there at Biola in Los Angeles, Bible Institute of Los Angeles, good school. He wasn't real hot on that, but he said, you, you, yeah, I'll help you. Okay. That wasn't based on the Canaanites. It wasn't based on the idols. It was based on the scriptures. That's how universities used to be in America. Harvard started out as an orthodox evangelical school based on the word of God to a train pastors and theologians and missionaries for the Great Commission and the discipling of the church. That's how Harvard started out. They lasted, they started right around 50 years. Here comes the liberalism. So a group of other guys, they said, we're gonna start a school and we'll, we're gonna be built on the word of God and we'll never, we'll never waver. They called that one Yale. And then Yale, give them 50, 60 years, and then they're over the cliff. And then another group of guys says, well, we're gonna really start a school that'll stand on the word of God. And, and, and they called that one Princeton. All of the Ivy League schools except one were based on the word of God and they've all gone over the cliff. Andre Sue uh, Peterson in World Magazine, great columnist. She has an article called Off to College. And the subtitle is, uh, hundreds of years of bad philosophy are about to immerse your child. Very encouraging. 
So you're sending Johnny off to college and keeping your fingers crossed. You've heard the statistics about kids losing their faith at university. You believe the price tag is way out of proportion to the product. You know he'll be paying loans off till he's 40. But it's a testimony to the power of tradition and cultural inertia that you're going ahead with it anyway. And if that's how it's to be, then start preparing yourself. When he comes home at Thanksgiving, uh, he'll remark over Turkey that America is a genocidal country that deserves to be destroyed. And that during Christmas, he'll educate you not to say Merry Christmas, but Happy Holidays. On spring vacation, he'll declare his true mother is the earth. Um, by the time you drove off from campus and dropped him off in August, uh, until the leaves begin to fall in the autumn and you've been writing checks, here's what academia has pumped into his brain as you were writing those checks. They told him this, once upon a time people were ignorant and gullible and had a faith in God and in the church. That was called the Middle Ages and good riddance to them. Then came the Enlightenment, so-called because people believed in reason and traded faith in God for faith in man's ability to seek and find true knowledge. But now we know better that there is no truth. This is what's taught now. But now we know better that there is no truth, that there are only truths, plural, and that your truth is yours and my truth is mine. So let's just coexist. And then he'll be taught about Kant and uh, perhaps Kierkegaard and Nietzsche. Nietzsche came up with God is dead. But she goes on and says, you cannot kill God without consequences. And it wasn't long until modernism gave way to postmodernism, where despair and skepticism were complete. The sons of Kant and Nietzsche talk like this. Oh, I had a professor, my junior year of college, very sharp lady. Um, I had another professor in the next class 60-year-old guy, and he was trying to act, dress and act like he was 25. I mean, he wanted to be a hippie, he wanted to be young, he was smoking joints in the car before he came into class. You could smell it on him. And he was just real cool and hip and just long hair, whatever. Hey, man, dude, hey. Yeah. I mean, when you're 60, you don't want to act like that. <laughs> he was Woodstock before there was a Woodstock. <laughs> this lady was the complete opposite. Sharp, well-dressed, just on top of it. But I started picking up some things. She started quoting this guy, and she quotes him too, uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein. And every time she would quote this Wittgenstein guy, I would say, what? It made no sense to me. What I found out later, I found out more about Wittgenstein. And I realized that well-dressed lady was as much of a hippie in her heart and in her mind as that guy was in the next class. She just didn't look like it. Wittgenstein, and this is what's taught in universities. Wittgenstein said this, all propositions of logic say the same thing, that is nothing. You might wanna put that on your kitchen uh, wall. <laughs> that's, that's nonsense. All propositions of logic say the same thing, that is nothing. How insightful. That is so deep. <laughs> uh, 
So let me get this straight. All propositions of logic say the same thing. That is nothing. That means what you just proposed is worthless. You can't take these guys to their logical conclusion because it makes no sense. She goes on and says, these were the first generation of postmodernist professors, but now we're into our third and fourth generation of professors who are all postmodern. Here's the curious thing. These postmodernists, for all their insistence of the impossibility of truth and the absence of a philosophical basis for morals and values, are all leftist. And then she lists them. Claiming philosophically that we can know nothing at all, they turn around and claim to know that class power struggle is the driving engine of history. Really. Claiming that language has no correspondence to the empirical world, they inconsistently make statements about right and wrong and social justice. Truth is subjective, but my view is right and yours is wrong. Values are impossible, but fight racism and sexism. America is evil, but it's unjust to keep anyone out. Technology is ruinous. Oh, but it's not fair that poor people in the world don't have it. Tolerance is good, but Christianity is intolerable. She says, then dust off Johnny's Bible and review in 1 Corinthians what God has said about the wisdom of this world. You don't have to be in a university to get uh, indoctrinated with the wisdom of this world. Last week, I fully intended to get to Isaiah 40. I never got there. I'm going to get there today. But first, we're going to stop off at 1 Corinthians 3. Why would I want to stop off there? Well, because 1 Corinthians 3 tells us what we're up against in this culture. So you've got two worldviews. Atheism, no God. Theism, there is a God. If you hold to theism, they're going to mock you. They're going to make fun of you. They're going to say, you're not a thinker. You have no rational ground when indeed you do have rational ground. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Then if you go to 1 Corinthians 3, verse 18, let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may also become wise. For the wisdom of this world, what we get in our educational system from kindergarten on up, the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God, for it is written, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. So then let no one boast in men. Huh. 
Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he knows and understands me, God says in Jeremiah. Go to Psalm 1. Uh, there's two kinds of wisdom. It just depends on what your worldview is. If your worldview is atheism, you're going to follow the wisdom of men. The, 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 the big three, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and all of their lineage. But there's the wisdom of God. In Psalm 1, we read this. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. In other words, who, influence, who influences you? Who influences your thinking? Who are your teachers? Who are your counselors? Where do you get your direction? Who do you look to for guidance in life? How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Ah, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates both day and night. He'll be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf, leaf does not wither. And whatever he does, he prospers. You're firmly planted by springs of living water. Why? Because you're getting the absolute wisdom of the almighty, incomprehensible, yet knowable God. That's the difference between the two worldviews. And as Christians, it's very easy. And there are Christians who say, oh yes, I'm a Christian, I believe in the Lord Jesus. Let me be real honest with you, who never interact with the scriptures. If you never interact with the scriptures, if you're not studying the scriptures, you're living off the wisdom of the world. You're living off something. And this determines our choices, it determines what we teach our kids, it determines our level of peace when things fall apart in our lives. Are you a big godder or a little godder? I mentioned last week J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, that had a great influence on me. A tremendous book on the character and existence and attributes of God, what God is really like. I've read it numerous, numerous, numerous times. He has a chapter in there called The Majesty of God or The Greatness of God. And in that chapter, he has a breakdown. He asks a question, and the question is this. How may we form a right idea of God's greatness? Because God is great. We sing a chorus, how great is our God. And he's great. How, how may we form a right idea of God's greatness when we are surrounded by a culture that tells us he doesn't exist, but if he does exist, you're fooling yourself. How may we form a right idea of God's greatness? Packer gives us two ways, and this is our outline. I'm just using Packer's outline. Here's how you increase in God's greatness. Number one, you remove from your thoughts of God limits that would make him small. Remove from your thoughts of God limits that would make him small. And secondly, you compare him with powers and forces which we regard to be great. In other words, do a comparison with God and everything else that you think is great in the world. So what is the first thing? Let's start there. 
removed from our thoughts of God limits that would make him small. So, we looked last week at Psalm 139 that talks about the fact that God is everywhere, that God knows everything, even before there is a word on my tongue, before Lord, Lord, you know it all. Where can I go from my presence? Where can I flee? I can't escape your presence because God is everywhere. God knows everything. He not only knows what I'm gonna speak for the rest of my life, he knows how I'm gonna say it, the attitude behind it, the nuance of the language, he knows everything about me. He knows all things. There is nothing that God does not know. He knows everything that is and everything that could be. So see, when I start getting small thoughts of God, I, th I gotta think correctly. How do I think correctly about God? I've gotta be in the scriptures. I've gotta know Psalm 139. It stabilizes me, it helps me. So um, Martin Luther was a Roman Catholic priest. He could not find peace with God. Uh, he knew he was a sinner, he would confess his sin, he would spend hours and hours and hours confessing every sin he could remember so that God would forgive him. And then he would fall asleep exhausted because, and he would wake up and he was as guilty as when he started because he knew he couldn't remember everything. He, he was studying the New Testament and as he was reading the scriptures one day it hit him like a ton of bricks in Galatians and you'll find it again in Romans that the just shall live by faith. And his eyes were open and he understood the gospel that we are justified not by good works but by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I, it is, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus went to the cross and took my sin. And Jesus paid it all. He paid it in full. And he not only forgives my sin, he forgets my sins. Your sins and lawless deeds, I will remember no more. That blew Luther out of the water. He began to preach it. The church authorities of the Roman Catholic Church got all over him. They put him on trial because the Roman Catholic Church to this day still teaches many good folks in the Roman Catholic Church. The problem is with the doctrine they're taught. We are not justified by good works, we're justified by faith in Jesus alone. You see? It's, it's the gospel. And Luther began to preach this and declare it and they called him up on trial and on his way to the trial, his friends kidnapped him, took him off to a castle his friends kidnapped him because they thought he was going to be killed. And he starts writing these articles and someone starts taking them out. And there's this guy, just by chance, there was this guy named Gutenberg who invented this press. Just by chance. Gutenberg starts printing all of Luther's stuff. It's going everywhere throughout Europe. And all of a sudden people are understanding the gospel and believing in the Lord Jesus. Oh, and the other thing Luther did while he was in prison, he translated the Bible out of an incomprehensible language for most people into everyday German. And so your average German guy was reading the scriptures. And people are getting saved left and right and it reformed the whole world. A couple of pastors got together and there was a, um, a legislator there in Germany and he got these guys together and he found the Lord. And we, we, gotta, we gotta teach our children and we've gotta teach the new believers. They came up with something, it was in Heidelberg, they came up with something called the Heidelberg Catechism. It's very solid, it's solid to this day. And it's a teaching mechanism where with questions and answers, you can teach the scriptures. 
So question 26, are you still with me? What do you believe when you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? What do you believe? What do you believe? A lot of people say they believe that, but they don't believe what the Bible says. You got books being written by quote unquote evangelical authors that say God does not know the future. It's called open theism. So what do you mean when you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? Answer, that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and all that is in them, and who still upholds and governs them by his eternal counsel and providence, is for the sake of Christ his Son, my God and my Father. In him I trust so completely as to have no doubt that he will provide me with all things necessary for body and soul and will also turn to my good whatever adversity he sends to me in this life of sorrow. He is able to do so as almighty God and willing also as a faithful father. And then there are 24 scripture references to back it up. A lot of Christians don't believe God sends adversity. But God sends adversity. God uses adversity in the lives of his children. Consider the work of God, Ecclesiastes 7. Who can straighten what he has bent? In the day of prosperity, be glad. In the day of adversity, consider, for God has made the one as well as the other. He used the term providence. Providence is one of the greatest doctrines in the Bible, yet so many modern Christians are unfamiliar with it. So what is the providence of God? That's the question, 27. What do you understand by the providence of God? God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. God is in absolute control of all things, good and bad. Well, how could God, if God's good, and see, this is, the, this, is the, this is the big time question. If God is good, then is God the author of evil? God is not the author of evil because of his character. In Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holiness, three times. That's absolute moral purity. God cannot sin. God cannot lie. God cannot do evil. There is evil. And evil is a little gadget on God's Swiss, his Swiss army knife that he uses for the good of his people and the glory of the church. So Joseph was 17. His brother sold him into slavery. Was that evil? The answer is yes. You don't have to be politically correct in here. It's evil to sell a kid into slavery at 17. Could God have stopped the evil? Yes. Did God stop the evil? No. Has evil happened to you? Yes. Could God have stopped it? Yes. Why didn't God stop it? I don't get that. I don't understand it. 
It's back to Isaiah 55, 8. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. You ever get exasperated with God? You ever get angry at God? You ever throw a, a plate across the room because you're mad at God? You ever put your hand through a wall? I would never do any of those things. <laughs> Except the fist through the wall. I did that once. If you're good, how can you allow this? It's, uh, we don't get it. We can't get it. He told us we wouldn't get it. It makes no sense. It's the most grievous thing in the world. It'll drive you nuts trying to, try, trying to work it out. You won't work it out. It's a mystery. But know this. He is the God who brings good out of evil. He did that for Joseph. Joseph said to his brothers years and years later, you intended it for evil. God intended it for good in order to bring about this present result. Romans 8, 28, and we know that God causes. Do you know this? God causes all things to work together for good. It doesn't say all things are good. All things aren't good. Murder's not good. Bankruptcy's not good. Rape, divorce, all kinds of things aren't good. But God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. As we said last week, he's not gonna do your life the way you think he ought to do it. But he's God and he's great and he's good and he can be trusted. I want to tell you something. This is the greatest stuff in the world. This will keep you from taking your own life. I know of six, seven, eight men in evangelical churches in Bible studies, active, over the last 10, 15 years, who took their own lives. What in the world happened? They forgot all of this. They forgot. The liar, the devil, started whispering thoughts in their minds that there was no hope. And they only saw one way out, which was the wrong way. Now, can God forgive the sin of suicide? Absolutely. Because when you were on the, when, when, when Jesus went to the cross, he paid for our sins in full. We're in spiritual battle, folks. I was pretty depressed Friday night. Um, I just was. To the point, I told my wife, I. I really wish I was not speaking at Stonebriar Sunday morning. I don't want to get up there and that's the last thing I want to do. I didn't see any, I, I just, I was overwhelmed. I, I was, I mean I, I mean, I was just, I was depressed. It was too much. I woke up the next morning, I'm still depressed. So I got to fight it off. How do you fight it off? How do you fight off these lies about our lives? Jesus said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. That's what he said. And you know what? He means it. 
God's abandoned me. He hasn't abandoned you. He's right there. But I can't feel anything. That doesn't mean he's not there. We don't live our lives based on how we feel, although more and more Americans are living their lives off how they feel. Feelings can't be central in my life. Truth has to be central. So I'm depressed Saturday morning. I'm thinking I'm going to call Chuck to step in and preach for me. But wait a minute. I'm supposed to preach for him. That's not going to work. Yeah, I'm really sick. I'm not sick. I'm sick in my heart. How do you fight that off? I had to grab scripture. I grabbed on to Psalm 42. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Well, I knew why. I knew full, fully why I was in. I, I've had times in the past, I've gotten up, I can't sleep, three o'clock in the morning, I'll write it down on a legal pad. Why are you in despair, O my soul? There you go, that's why I'm in despair. Why are you in despair, O my soul, and why are you cast down within me? That, right there, you see that? That's why. There's no way to fix this stuff. I don't see any way out of this. Next line, hope in God. For I shall again praise him for the help of his saving acts. It doesn't say I might. It doesn't say I sure hope he comes here. I shall again praise him for the help of his saving acts. Why? Because Jesus is a savior. And he keeps saving. He's God. Yes, he saved me when he went to the cross and I trusted in Christ. But that's not the only, yeah, he saved me from my sin. But the whole rest of my life, he's going to save me. From situations and circumstances and stupidity and my mistakes, he's a savior. I, I had to wrestle with it, and that, that's really what pulled me out of the depression. 30 years ago, I would have been down for a week. I would have. But you see, there's power in the word of God. I wish I had a GPS to tell me what I'm supposed to do next because I've sort of lost my spot. But give me just a minute as I act like I'm together. Here we go. What happens in our culture is that we are told that God doesn't exist. If he does exist, we're told that uh, we're told that you really cannot trust the Bible. You'd be crazy to trust the Bible. Um, and a lot of what comes down, and a lot of young people have been told about the transmission down through and the different scribes and the copies and all of that. If you really study that, in fact, here, in, in Lennox's book, the copies and manuscripts that we have for the Old Testament and New Testament are staggering. And the integrity is there. Lennox says this. 
As for the New Testament, many people's opinions seem to be based on wild conspiracy theories, and they seem unaware of how overwhelmingly strong the evidence for the reliability of the New Testament text actually is. The common view that the New Testament text is untrustworthy or is invented much later than it claims to be or is simply a fake simply do not stand up to any serious examination. And then he goes into the manuscripts and shows you why it can be trusted. Same thing in the Old Testament. But we're hitting with this barrage of propaganda. We talked about Robert Dick Wilson. Interesting guy. Uh, brilliant, brilliant scholar. Uh, when he was... Um, in college, he could read the New Testament in nine different languages. When he was 25 years old, he determined he would invest his years of careful study in the text of the Old Testament. His goal was to speak with authority as to whether or not it had been accurately preserved. Because you see, this is what the criticism says, is that, oh no, the text wasn't preserved, it's been you know, changed over the years, and it's not all there, and you can't trust it, and it's not. I had a gentleman after the first service come up and tell me he's having a discussion with family members about this. Oh, you can't believe the Bible for this very reason. Um, the task to which young Robert Dick Wilson dedicated himself was this. Can we be sure that the writings at our disposal have been faithfully preserved? He committed his entire life to demonstrating that they can be trusted. This is very interesting. Based upon the longevity of his ancestors, his immediate ancestors, his mother and father, Robert Dick Wilson estimated that he might live to be about 70 years of age. Since he was 25 at the time, that would give him about 45 years remaining to accomplish his goal. Accordingly, he divided his projected remaining years into three periods of 15 years each. I can't even remember to go to the barber shop on Friday. <laughs> and this guy's got three 15-year plans. Here's how he would pursue his plan. Number one, for the first 15 years, he would study every language that had a bearing on the text of the Old Testament. He set himself to the task. During that time, he mastered 45 languages. He not only became an expert in Hebrew and his kindred tongues, but he learned all the languages into which the scriptures had been translated down to the year of A.D. 600. Secondly, during the next 15 years, Wilson dedicated himself to studying the text of the Old Testament itself. This is amazing. He looked at every consonant in the Old Testament. The Hebrew text has no vowels. About one and a quarter million of them. He made a thorough scientific investigation of the Old Testament text as compared to the other writings of antiquity. Wilson then spent his remaining years writing down the results of his long research. He authored a marvelous book titled The Scientific Investigation of the Old Testament, in which he confidently affirmed we are scientifically certain that we have substantially the same Old Testament text that was in the possession of Jesus Christ and the apostles, so far as anybody knows, the same as was written by the original composers of the Old Testament documents. This guy just didn't read something on the internet and believe it. He spent 45 years of his life doing the hard work. There would be a one quarter page criticism that would come out in a theological journal. I've got this here. I won't quote it. There'd be a one page criticism. He would take all the time he needed. He'd work on it. He'd look at the presumptions. He'd look at the assumptions. His response was a hundred pages long to show the truthfulness of God's word.
If God's word isn't true, how in the world can, can, what did Isaiah say? Comfort, comfort, oh my people. And then he talks about the word of God. The, the, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. We're told the word of God does not stand and cannot be trusted. If the word of God cannot stand, how are you going to make it? I made it because of Psalm 42. If Psalm 42 is not true, I'm in trouble. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm worried about my long-term financial situation, you know, and I'm not getting any younger and I haven't saved enough for retirement. And, and you know, what if we have a recession? And what if we have all this? And I had a gentleman years ago come up to me right here and very fit, very good shape. I would imagine, you know, he was close to 80. Uh, we talked briefly. He'd been very successful. God had blessed him in his business. And I really liked him and his honesty. He said, I have to tell you, Steve, I have a little bit of a fear. God's blessed me with health. And if there was a downturn, I sometimes wonder if I will outlive my money. I said, well, I understand why you might think that. He said, can I outlive my money? I said, yeah, actually you can. But you can't outlive Isaiah 46, 2 and 3. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and you remnant of Israel. You have, who have been born by me from birth and carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I will be the same. Even to your grain years, I will bear you. I have birthed you. I have carried you. I will carry you. And I will deliver you. You might, you might run out of money. You're not going to run out of the promises of God. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. You can't do it. Well, I don't see any. I met with my financial planner, and there's no possible. Get a financial planner that believes in Jesus. Who doesn't put limits on God. Yeah, you use your head as best you can. You make the best decisions. Nobody does it perfectly. Nobody's got a perfect financial plan. I remember in my early 30s, I set up this plan and I had this guy help me. And, you know, we spent a lot of time on it. And he sent me, gave me this. I still have the blue notebook, the binder. It's all color-coded and the goals and this and this. And I was pretty proud of it, you know. Mary, I, you know, she knew about it. And we'd been talking to this guy. And I showed it to a friend of mine. And, oh, yeah, you know. And. I mean, within two weeks, it was like, you know, hey, Lord, did you see my financial plan? <laughs> hey, wait a minute. That's all color-coded here. Wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Well, if I'm going to put money away, I mean, on this, I've got to get paid. And I wasn't paid for six months. How am I going to make it? We made it because God is faithful. See, our problem is we, all, we always want to see how we're going to make it. How is this going to work? He's not going to tell you how. He's just going to do it. And he'll do it a step at a time. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard what God has prepared for those who love him. You ever been shocked and surprised by the goodness of God? 
by the intervention of God, by the manna of God? Sure. See, that's why we do the second thing. And you thought I forgot, but I didn't. What's the second thing Packer told us to do? You compare God with things that you think are great. So let's do that. Won't take much time. Isaiah 40, beginning with verse 12. So I've got to remove things about God from my thinking that aren't true. And then I've got to compare God with things that are great, that that I think are magnificent. So in verse 12, here's what you get. You have these comparisons. In verse 12, God says, consider the task that I have done. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span? So what God is saying is, who has measured the waters? God doesn't have an actual hand. This is an anthropomorphism, anthropos meaning man. But God will speak of himself as though he has a human body. He doesn't. All the oceans of the world, he's saying, I have in the palm of my hand. Who has marked off the heavens by the span? You know what the span is? Difference between your little finger and your thumb. What, six inches? God has marked off the heavens, the universe, by his hand. And calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales. One commentator says this, God alone has the power to create the physical universe and the earth in perfect balance, weighing mountains and seas perfectly so that the earth moves perfectly through space. This matter of the amazing balance of our planet is called the science of isostasy. It's all in the hands of God. That's amazing. Uh, Compare him with uh, the nations. Verse 15. Behold the nations. And some of you were, you know, had trouble sleeping last night because you were watching the news and you're, you know, North Korea. And, well, my gosh, what if that guy, that guy's nuts. What if he shoots off a missile? Uh, or or what, what about Russia? And what about Iran? And what about Syria? And what about, oh, man, we could be in a World War, War, you know, and all of a sudden your blood pressure and you can't sleep. And, hey, man, take a chill pill. <laughs> Turn that news off and get into Isaiah 40. Here's what God says about the nations. The nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Sometimes I'll weigh out protein powder on this little food scale and I got it in a, you know, a cup. And sometimes it'll spill and I get a little dust. I'll take it off and I get a little dust on the scale and I just go, that's what God thinks of the nations. You need to get your eyes on God. Not Putin. Or Kim Jong Insane, or whatever his name is. God runs those guys. I'll show you that in just a minute. Look at 17. All the nations are as nothing before him, they are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. So why don't you get some sleep? Look at verse 22. God compares himself with the world, with the universe. And here God is sitting in his lazy boy recliner with his feet up on the earth. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. 
who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and who spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Jai Packer says, the world dwarfs us all, but God dwarfs the world. That's true. Oh, what about great leaders? What about great rulers? Look at the next verse, 23. It is God who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted. Scarcely have they been sown. Scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth. But he merely blows on them. Hitler, Stalin, Saddam Hussein, and they wither. They're just men. Twenty-six, he compares himself with the stars. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. 10, 12, 15 years ago, we were thinking about getting the dog. Came across these, I saw some Irish wolfhounds. And I found out there was a breeder north of Denton. So Mary and I got the kids and we went up to see this breeder. And these are big dogs. And we go up to this ranch and we get out and all of a sudden I see these, this herd of Irish wolfhounds. I mean, they're huge. I mean, they're running and they're out of control. And I got little, I got these kids and everyone, we're just kind of, and I thought, oh my gosh, this is, and all of a sudden there was a whistle and they all came to a halt. And here came the breeder. She called them all by name. On Dancer, on Vixen, on... <laughs> I don't, that's the best I could do right now. She knew them all by name. That's what God does with the stars, with the universe, with the Milky Way, with the galaxies. What are you worried about? What are you scared of? Isaiah 41, verse 10, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is the arm of the Lord too, so short? I'm, these are other scriptures that he cannot save. No, nothing is impossible with God. If you're sick with worry, you've got your eyes on men and circumstances. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Because he's God, and he is great, and he's got you. So we thank you for this truth, Father. Comfort our hearts with these words. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.